In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Nice to see you all tonight. Hope you've enjoyed this beautiful day. You're pretty, you're pretty good to come to church on this beautiful day instead of having a picnic somewhere. Glad to see you. I wonder if you've heard the quote, Move confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you have imagined. You heard that one before? Knew where it's from? It's actually a fairly famous quote. You can find it written beautifully on Instagram memes or t-shirts or coffee mugs. I think there was actually a few years ago an investment firm that used that as their slogan for TV commercials during golf tournaments, showed a preppy, cult, uh, preppy couple uh, sailing into the sunset on their yacht. Move confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you have imagined. It's pretty attractive. I mean, it appeals to us because uh, it seems to say you can do it. You can make it happen and then you'll be happy. This quote tells us that it's all within our grasp, so go for it. It can be yours, a a stress-free life of ease or trips or adventure, great food. That's what comes to my mind anyway. Because I'm the captain of my ship, the master of my destiny, responsible for my own bootstraps. Move confidently. In the in direction of your dreams, this quote kind of massages the dream of our own greatness. It tickles the pursuit of the so-called American dream. It might lay on us a heavy burden of expectation, except that it's a misquote. It's a misquote. Henry David Thoreau wrote similar words at the conclusion of his famous work Walden, which you read sometime between ninth grade and your sophomore year in college. And, and Thoreau actually assumes that if you've made it this far in his fairly dense book, that you have already uh, radically reshaped your dreams towards a life of stark simplicity. He says, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, as he simplifies his life, The laws of the universe will appear less complex, and solitude will no longer seem like solitude, nor poverty, poverty, nor weakness, weakness. It's pretty much the opposite of the investment commercial version. And I only bring it up because I think it's remarkable how the human heart so gravitates towards self-centeredness and accumulation as the keys to happiness and a fulfilled life, that we can twist and edit words until they mean whatever we want them to mean. I have to promise you, this is not a sermon about the evils of wealth. In fact, money is, I think money is very good and it can make things much easier sometimes. But this is a sermon about what truly gives us life the fulfillment that we all long for. And so I want to ask you, what are your dreams for your life? What needs to be in place in order for you to feel 
uh, like your life is fulfilled in order to consider yourself a success or even blessed. Our gospel passage that I just read uh, puts us face to face with some of Jesus' most challenging teaching. Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. Take up your cross and follow me. You wonder if Jesus like woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something that day. It, and I think it would have surely sounded just as harsh to the disciples as it sounds to us. Maybe more so. Yet what I want to suggest to you uh, this evening is that Jesus is actually saying that here that he wants us to have life. He wants us to have an incredibly meaningful, fulfilled, full life. What he says here is not antithetical to other things that we love that he says, like, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. But it's a very Lenten passage, and it certainly challenges our natural instinct to go confidently in the direction of our dreams by the way of self-promotion and accumulation. So what do you want for your life? To the passage. Just before, just before Peter gets into trouble, he has, just before this, he has been the very first one to confess that Jesus is the Christ. You remember, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up boldly as the leader of all the disciples and says, you are the Christ. And of course, Peter's right. Jesus is the Christ. The problem is that Peter had the wrong idea about just what it was that the Christ was going to do. And that's because from the time he was a little boy in the synagogue school, Peter would have been taught that the Messiah to come was going to be a political and a military leader, a king. And he was going to reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation and as a God-fearing world superpower. And, as far as Peter knows, he's on the inside track for this soon-to-be king, this Messiah. Peter's going to be vice president, a prime minister. He's He's going to take this thing all the way to the top. Peter's moving confidently in the direction of his dreams. But Jesus then begins to tell them a very different version of what it's going to mean for him to be the Christ. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders. And he's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to rise. Well, Peter, Peter doesn't understand that last part. He doesn't hear it at all. And he takes Jesus aside because, you know, he's living the life that he's imagined. And, and he says, buddy, we're not going to let that happen. Not on my watch. You don't have to worry. We're going to get you to the throne. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I can't think of any way that Jesus could have delivered a more stinging rebuke. Why be so harsh? It's because Peter is tempting Jesus. He, he doesn't even know he's doing it, but he's tempting Jesus the same way that Satan had tempted Jesus in the wilderness. 
Peter's tempting him to take the glory without the cross. To take the kingship without suffering. To be the champion without death. But Jesus came to die. He came to shoulder our sin upon Himself on the cross. And it was going to be terrible. How tempting it would have been to take the easier road to be a worldly king rather than being an eternal Savior. To save Israel from Rome rather than to save sinners from themselves. But Jesus knew what Peter had not yet grasped. In fact, Jesus knew what is so hard for all of us to grasp, and that is that true life for us would come on the other side of His own suffering and death. This is why He came. He did not come merely to set a good example or to teach us how to love, though certainly He does those things. But He came to die so that a just and merciful God would have a place to punish sin without punishing us. Jesus says the Son of Man must undergo these things. It was necessary. And though Peter surely meant to encourage Jesus, Jesus would not give in to the temptation that Peter's path offered. He would not live the life that Peter had imagined for him. Jesus was headed to the cross for us. It was the only way. But then, if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus says that the path to life for all of us takes the same path of death. In order to follow Him, you must take up your cross, Jesus says. And this actually might have been more offensive for the disciples than get behind me, Satan. I mean, a cross was not a euphemism for a hardship or inconvenience the way we use it. You know, oh, it's just my, it's not, that's my cross to bear. No, no. They knew that a cross was an instrument of agonizing torture and slow death, and they were reminded of it every time they left the city gates. If anyone wants to follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a terrible marketing strategy. I mean, it's the worst. I mean, who's going to follow that? But unapologetically, Jesus marches on. Whoever wants to save their own life is going to lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their life? Do you see what Jesus is after? He's after life. He doesn't want us to forfeit it. He wants us to move confidently in the direction of the life that He's promised for us. He doesn't want our hearts to be distracted by the siren calls of earthly means of fulfillment when His peace is available to us. He's not saying, I don't want you to have a great life. He's saying, you can have the whole world, but if I'm not at the center of it, you don't have any life at all. 
C.S. Lewis preached a famous sermon many years ago called The Weight of Glory. And in that sermon, he said this. He said, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he simply cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Infinite joy is offered to us. To take up our cross must first be to take up the cross of Christ and to trust in the work of Jesus alone for our salvation rather than to trust in the temporary satisfaction of our own pet sins or our own self-improvement projects. The problem is, we really like those distracting things. We really like drink and sex and ambition. We love the idea of our own glory. And so setting those things down, even setting them down in favor of the joyful life that Jesus offers, setting them down requires a sort of death. And we often call this, in Christian circles, dying to self. It is essentially denying oneself something now, in the trust that God will provide something much greater, even if it comes later. Or as one theologian put it, Jesus is calling those who would follow him to shift the center of gravity from an instinctive concern to self to a reckless abandon to the will of God. And friends, that requires some honesty with oneself, and it requires a lot of faith. I wonder if you saw the 1990 movie, The Hunt for Red October. It's based on the the novel by Tom Clancy, and in it, Sean Connery plays the captain of a Russian nuclear submarine, the Red October, and he and his crew are defecting to the United States, and a very young, slim, handsome Alec Baldwin plays Jack Ryan, and Jack Ryan is helping them defect. And there's this tense scene in the movie where a torpedo has been fired at the sub, And the Russian Connery tells Jack Ryan in this weird Scottish-Russian accent, set a course for 315. But the American captain says, wait a second, that's headed right for the torpedo. Don't do it. And Connery tells Ryan again, turn the right flank until that dial right there says 315. And the American retorts, Ryan, don't turn the dial. You're going to get us all killed. Calmly, Connery says, three, one, five. Ryan has a choice to make. Who's he going to trust? Is he going to trust the voice that says, run towards the torpedo? Or is he going to trust the voice that's 
more sensibly says, run away. Ryan swallows hard. He turns the knob towards 3-1-5. And the countdown to impact is on. And as the count gets to zero, they brace themselves for impact and probably death. But the torpedo glances harmlessly off the sub and everything is okay. By heading towards the torpedo, Connery's character had reached the torpedo before it was programmed to arm itself. What had seemed like the path to death was actually the path to life for all of them. But Ryan had to have faith in the captain. He had to trust that the captain knew what he was doing, even when it seemed crazy. And the life of faith is just like that sometimes. We move confidently in the direction of the cross as we bless those who curse us, as we love our enemies, as we give our hard-earned money away, as we turn the other cheek, as we hold our tongues. We trust that the captain knows what he's doing, believing that the path that seems like weakness and death is actually the path to true life. That the path that seems like emptying ourselves actually is the path to the greatest fulfillment. Our loving and gracious Father has imagined an incredibly full life for us. Infinite joy is offered to us. But it is often a life of heading towards the torpedo. So who are we going to trust? Amen.